were asleep, you're not now. <laughs> Just please bow your heads with me as we open up with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you and I praise you for who you are and for allowing us to come into your house to worship you, to fellowship with you, and to be here with each other. God, I pray that as we look at the scripture this morning, as we hear the message preached, Father God, what we hear is your voice, and what we hear is the prompting of your spirit. God, I pray that you be with us, and that you instruct us in this time, and that we are attentive, and that we block everything else out. It's in your son's name that I pray and ask these things. Amen. Hold on here before I get started. Make sure I stay on track. I'm going to be honest with you guys this week. As I wrote my sermon and as I prepared for this week, I've, I've been distracted. Um, and if you have social media, you've watched the news, you can understand why there's distraction. Looking at what is happening to our nation. As, as Roger mentioned, he says, you know, pray for our nation, pray for its leaders. But how, how do we pray, especially in a time where we look at everything that's happening around us and things are falling apart. And it looks like everything is just melting down. And it's all because of the killing of George Floyd and the ensuing riots that have been taking place. And to be honest, it's troubling just to see what is happening to our nation. And I have uh, been distracted by, by what's been, been happening around me. And, and the reality is, is the cry for justice, it's a real cry because no one deserved to die in that way. Now, you may be on one side of the issue or the other side of the issue, but what I see in all of this is that what is being highlighted is that there is a division amongst humanity on all spectrums across our nation. And it grieves me the way that this man's life was taken. It grieves me also the way that it's been reacted. Because if you see the reaction, there have been those who have been peacefully protesting, but they aren't getting as much recognition as those who are destroying stuff. And the thing is, is they have a right to protest, but what you don't have the right to do is to destroy buildings, to destroy cities, to destroy livelihoods. And by the way, there have been lives that have been taken in the midst of the riots. So you have life taken here, you have livelihoods and life taken here, and all of it should make us mourn for what we are seeing on a human level. This isn't the way we should be treating each other. This isn't the way we should be, re I mean, justice does need to happen, and by the way, it is going to happen, but what we are seeing is, it's just bothersome, and I don't know if it troubles you, but it's been troubling me all week, and I, another thing that's been troubling me, though, is to see, again, different sides of this entire issue, and there are multiplicity of faucet, uh, facets to this entire issue, and it's not as clear-cut as some people are making it out to be, but this idea of it's, if it, if it's so clear-cut it's putting things in, in a perspective that I've never seen before. On Facebook, which is the only social media that I'm able to actually use because it's the only one I understand, but I know it's happening on other, on other venues as well, but I have friends who have been friends for years, and I'm talking around 10 to 15 years or more so, and they are starting to cut people out of their lives because of how they're reacting to this situation on one side or the other. I don't know how many times I've seen people say, if this is the way that you're going to react, or if this is the way that you believe, I don't need you in my life. I've seen people put on their Facebook posts, if you've been removed and you see me, you, me block you from uh, my life on my Facebook post and it offends you, it's supposed to. I've seen things like that, and I'm like, what? What are we, 
how is this even possible? And how is this even happening? And then the thing that grieves me the most, as much as I hate seeing everything that we're viewing and seeing the relationships destroyed, is the way that fellow brothers and sisters in Christ have treated each other over this one issue. My alma mater decided to hold a prayer vigil there at the main campus in Tennessee, the one that I attended. And what they did is they said, we're going to have a, a night of prayer for confession as well as for healing. They didn't use the word healing, but that's what they meant by the word. And there were some elements that, were, that, were, that they were going to do that, honestly, I didn't personally agree with. But I understood the premise of what they were trying to do. If you know anything about Johnson's history, Johnson has been around for around 120 years. Actually, 125. And they didn't start admitting black students until 1969 when President Dr. Eubanks took over the helm and started ab allowing students to come in. The thing is, is... They're saying what we did there in keeping our fellow brothers and sisters who were of a different skin color from coming to learn how to preach the gospel that was wrong on our part. And they were admitting that. And I, and, and, and I understood that. And I knew that, you know, it should have happened sooner than 1969. That's what they were saying. And they said, you know, for our part in being complacent in this type of reality, we're sorry. We want to seek healing. They want to seek healing for the entire understanding of what's happening in the nation. And what I saw from some of my fellow Johnsonites, those that disagreed with what was happening, there were those that agreed with the school, and there were those that disagreed. I've never seen Christians rip each other apart the way that these fellow Johnson students were ripping each other apart. Talk about demoralizing when you see brother and sister in Christ throwing verbal hand grenades and cutting words at the same time using Scripture to back up their views. That hurt. Because I didn't agree fully with what Johnson was doing, but I understood why they were doing it, and I supported them fully. Why? Because I don't have to agree with everything that you're doing to be able to support and understand why you're doing what you're doing. RZIM, which is an international organization that was founded by Ravi Zacharias, who's passed here recently, they changed their background on Tuesday to a blacked-out screen for Blackout Tuesday. And to see, again, fellow brothers and sisters ripping each other apart because of what they were doing. That's demoralizing. To say that we have division is an understatement. Now, people are saying this is a division over the idea of race. By the way, race is a man-made word, and it is a created man-made word for the purpose of division. There is only one race, by the way, and it's the human race. And we come in all different shapes, forms, and skin colors. But when you start hyper-focusing on this view or that view or this idea, what's going to happen? Division. What's going to happen? Separation and destruction. And the question that I kept thinking in my mind as I was seeing these friends, as I was seeing these Christian brothers and sisters, these people that I look up to, and some of them that I respect, some of them taught me in school, and my question was this, whatever happened to doing as Christians are supposed to do, which is treating one another with respect and with grace and to seek understanding? Because there was no grace in a lot of the words that were being used or the arguments that were being had. There was not a lot of understanding being sought. There was a lot of making rash decisions. And so to say that I've been distracted... It would be an understatement. 
Because as much as I dislike what's happening to our country, and as much as I dislike what's happening, you know, because of certain issues, what I hate the most is the way that it's affecting the body of Christ. Because if the body of Christ can't even be unified, which we're supposed to, how can we even start to heal the hurts and understand what's happening outside of our walls? The thing is, is as Christ followers, we ought to be able to react to this situation in a specific way. And we as Christians ought to be able to do it together. Not this side versus this side, but together. And the question that pops in my head over this entire thing was, how do we get that in today's climate where it seems like everybody is against everyone else? You see, when you start to look at it, it's not just, you know, a black and white issue. Some people look at it as it's a Democrat or liberal versus Republican conservative issue. Some of it look at it from a lot of, again, there are a lot of different facets that I'm seeing pasted all over this thing and when you look at it all there's one word that comes to head that comes to my mind division divisiveness so how do we accomplish an idea of unity coming together in today's society where division is something that is rampant and is honestly normal in our text today we're going to be in acts chapter 4 verses 32 through 35 And in this passage this morning, what we're going to see is we're going to see something from the church in Acts about what they did and how they accomplished something that we wish could happen. And there are a couple nuggets of wisdom that I think we can pull from this passage that can help us accomplish a lot for us to grow as a church, for us to grow as a people, and for us to address some of the issues that we are facing in today's climate. Let's start off. We're going to look at all of it, and then we're going to go ahead and break down each element. Verses 32 through 35 in Acts chapter 4, and this is what it says. Now the entire group of those who believed were of one heart and one mind, and no one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but instead they held everything in common. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was on all of them. For there was not a needy person among them, because all those who owned lands or houses sold them. And they brought the proceeds of what was sold, and they laid it at the apostles' feet. This was then distributed to each person as any had need. Now, the first thing that I want to highlight in this passage, and this is a beautiful picture, by the way, that is painted. The first nugget that I want us to look at in this journey through our scripture this morning is the idea that is painted there in the very first verse, verse 32. It says, now the entire group of those who, were to, or who believed were of one heart and were of one mind. I want you to just look at that section right there. The group of those who believed were together. They had one heart and one mind. When we look at this and when we hear this idea, a lot of us are like, that would be a great thing to to grasp. But the question that comes to mind, especially for Christians, and especially with what I've been seeing happen on all different levels, again, throughout our culture, just by looking and sampling through Facebook, there's all different varieties of different people on there and different opinions, different ideas. This is something that I think we should shoot for, specifically as the church, 
specifically as Christians, because what I saw from my own alma mater and my brothers and sisters there, and what I saw on RZIM's uh, Facebook page and their website and saw there, this is something that is not happening within the church. This is something that is not a reality within the church. This is a beautiful picture that is painted here, and the question is, is what does it mean that they were of one heart and one mind? And how is this even possible to achieve, or is it even possible to achieve, especially in today's climate where people don't trust each other? Now let's look at that first idea, the one heart and one mind. What does that even mean? Does this mean that they didn't have their differences? Does it mean that they, that they just got along and there's absolutely no issues? Actually, contrary to that is the church in the first century had a lot of issues. They had a lot of struggles. They had a lot of things that they had to go through. By the way, in the book of Acts, there are two of them that are highlighted. And we'll be preaching, I think, on both of them. But I'm going to go ahead and highlight them, for, highlight them to you just to let you see some of the things that they were dealing with. One of them, by the way, well, actually both of the issues deal with two different cultural views. You could even say it was a racial issue to an extent. The first one was that the Grecian Jews, the Greek Jews, the, the Hellenistic Jews, they were being neglected in the, in the distributing of the food. And so they made a complaint and said, we're getting neglected. We're being left out of the distributing of the food for the widows to be taken care of. You know what happened? The church came together. The apostles gave them a way to get, make a solution for it. You know what they did? They found a solution. And they didn't fight over it. They didn't squabble. They found a solution and they dealt with it in a very gentle, humble, and a very well-thought-out plan. The second one was after the first missionary journey that Paul took around to the Greek cities and the, the Roman provinces. He went around and they were baptizing and making believers and him and Barnabas come back to Jerusalem and make their report to the church. And now the church at Jerusalem in chapter 15 of Acts, it's called the Jerusalem Council. By the way, this is the first church council that was ever called. Why? Because they needed to figure out, the question was, do we require these Gentile believers to be circumcised and to follow Jewish eating customs and to worship on the Sabbath and to do all these different things and to hold them to the laws of Moses or not? There was a section and a sect of them that said they have to, they have to basically become Jews and then become Christians for them to be accepted. There was a sector that says, no, they're fine as they are. Just leave them alone because Christ has accepted them. And so you have this debate that goes along, and they finally come to a conclusion of what needs to happen. And guess what the realization was? They don't need to follow Jewish custom. They don't need to follow Jewish ways because we as Jews can't even follow and keep the law of Moses. But Christ has accepted them as they are, and so should we. That was, that was what was said. So they went and took a letter that was written by the elders of the church in Jerusalem and spread it around to let them know you don't have to convert and follow the Jewish laws. Christ has accepted you and you are now accepted as part of the brotherhood of the family of Christ. This is what should have happened in the first place. Again, they came together, they talked about it. Yes, there was discussion, yes, there were opinions, but when the decision was made, they supported it. When you look throughout the epistles and you look at what Peter wrote, you look at what Paul wrote, you look at what the other writers of the New Testament wrote, guess what they dealt with? Issues and squabbles within the church. And you know why they dealt with these issues and why they looked at these issues? Because overarchingly, guess what they wanted to do? Division is not to be amongst the brotherhood. When we looked at the one another passages, remember, we looked at the idea of build each other up, don't tear each other down. 
Seek a place of understanding with each other. Don't reject each other. Don't fight with each other. The idea is to love your neighbor as yourself, to love your brother, both in the church and those who are outside of the church. Seek understanding and look for these things. This is what defined the church in the first century. Did they have their issues? Yes, they did. Do we see an issue in the first Corinthian letter where they were actually divided? Yes, they were. And Paul said, this grieves me greatly. And the place where they divided, by the way, was over the Lord's Supper and how to take it, whether it was communally or one group takes it and neglects the next. It was a high class versus a low class type of reality. Division on all sectors within our nation, you see it all over the world. Paul has to write to correct them. Why? Because we as human beings have a tendency to need corrected. You want to know why the flood happened? Because humanity needed to be corrected. God actually wanted to wipe us out. There's only one that found favor in his eyes. The reality that we're looking at, the idea that we're seeing here is there's one heart, one mind. So how were they able to achieve this? And Ken, is it something we can achieve? Well, what they focused on, and when I read this and I look at this entire verse, I see that they were one heart and they were of one mind. And it says this. No one claimed that any of his possessions were his own, but instead they held everything in common. Notice that idea. They held everything in common. Now here they're talking about possessions. But I think it goes deeper than just possessions. They didn't just hold their possessions as their own. I want you to think about this. If you were to define the way that you think, the way that you hold your ideas, and the way that you, hold the, the way that you believe, is that not something that you possess? You possess your code of conduct. You possess your ideas and your thoughts. You possess your understanding of the way things ought to go or ought not to go. You possess all those different things within your being. Do you not? And are you the same as everyone else who's around you? Or are you different in places? If you're identical to everyone else in this room, go ahead and raise your hand. Now, if you're different than everyone else in this room, raise your hand. Okay, we are all different. We all think differently. We all act differently. We are all different. We all have our personal preferences and our personal ideas and our personal goals. We have these things and we hold on to these things. But notice what it says here. They don't hold on to those things that are personal and separate and divide that makes them individuals. No, what do they do? They hold everything in common. When you think about what makes us one heart and one mind, what is the thing that holds them in common is that they have faith in Jesus Christ. They've been saved by Jesus Christ. They, therefore, hold the scriptures. They hold everything that they're supposed to, and they are defined by that and only that. They hold on to what makes them common. Why would any of us in this room honestly be with other people in this room if it wasn't for Jesus Christ? For some of you, you have relationships with people in this room. For some of you, you don't have other relationships with people in this room. Or those that are watching. Or those that may not be here yet to this morning that we're coming for second service. What makes us a church? What makes us a church is Christ and Christ crucified. Him saving us and Him bringing us together. It's the things that we hold in common. And it is the greatest common denominator that we ought to look at. Why? Because in Christ, what He sees is His children. He knows what makes you individually different. He knows what makes you you, but he also knows what makes you just like the other children in this room. They looked at what they held in common. 
They had one common goal. You could even go back and look at what we looked at in this kind of same picture in Acts chapter 2, where they devoted themselves to the word of God, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread or to communion or to the Lord's Supper and to prayer. They devoted themselves to the things of God. In other words, they set themselves aside and they became more like their Father in heaven. The more that we emulate God, the more that we can accomplish these things. Again, what do we find? They were one heart and one mind. Why? Because they looked at their commonalities and not at their differences. The second nugget that I want to move on to is found here in verse 33. As we continue on, it says this. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. The two elements that make up this nugget, there are two elements that make this up, which is this. There is great power in the gospel, and where there's great power in the gospel, there's great grace that is going to be applied. I'll explain to you what that means here in a moment. I'm getting a little parched. The first thing is, is the idea of the gospel. Let's look at that element of this nugget of wisdom, the power of the gospel. What really is the gospel? and What really is the power that it holds? The Apostle Paul ex would explain the power of the gospel with this word, or with this phrase. He would say, it is that which saves. That's probably the way he would explain it. This is the way he talks to it and, and refers to it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 4, to the church at Corinth. He says this, Now I have made known to you, brethren, the gospel which I have preached to you, which I received, and which now you stand, and which now you have been saved. If you will hold fast to what it is that I have preached to you. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I have also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. If you look at what Paul highlights here, he's saying the gospel is basically this, that which saves. Okay, well then how is it that the gospel saves us? It's not just the gospel message that saves you. It's what was done and what is explained in that gospel message. What were the apostles giving testimony to? To the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in order to talk about the resurrection of Jesus, they also had to talk about what? His death. The death, the burial, and the resurrection is in whole the, nut ca the, 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 the whole case of what it is to be saved. What it is to gain salvation. We are saved and we are redeemed only because Christ died on our behest. Had he not done that, we'd all still be in our sins, and there'd be absolutely no point for us showing up here on a Sunday morning. We could go fishing, we could go hunting, we could go do whatever it is that other people do on a Sunday morning. We could sleep in, for those of you that like to sleep in on, in the morning, mainly those two. <coughs> but the reality is, is we could be doing that, but why, why are we here? Because we have a Lord and a Savior, we know what he's done for us. It saves we know what the gospel is capable of. It rescues us from our sin. It rescues us from what we cannot rescue ourselves from. It brings us salvation. That's what the gospel does. The power of the gospel is found there. But there's a couple other elements of the gospel and the power that it has that we don't necessarily think about. A lot of the times we think about the power of the gospel and that brings us salvation. And by the way, that is the greatest gift that we could ever be given. But there are other beneficiaries or benefits of what we get from the gospel. One of those would be this. Not only are we saved, but because we've been saved, God now brings us together and forges us into a people where, where, where there was not a people to begin with. 
Let me explain to you what I'm talking about. Peter says it this way. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says this. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had once not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Through salvation, through the message of the gospel, not only do we gain salvation, not only do we receive mercy, which means instead of getting the wrath of God, we get the grace of God. That is one of the most merciful acts that God has done for us. But then he takes all of us who are spread out, who honestly have very little in common. When you stop to think about our interests and the things that we are, there are a few of you that have a few things in common. And you can trace those who have a few things in common. But for the reality, the majority of us in this room don't have a lot of things in common with each other. You were not a people. You were scattered abroad. You were wandering about. You were with this group or you were with this group, but the groups weren't together. But God brings you together and makes you a people for his own possession. God brings you together in the the understanding of the gospel and forges you to be his. See, we bear the name Christ or Christian. Why do we bear the name Christian? Christian means little Christs, little mimics of who Christ was. We bear that name because we are the people of God. That's what makes us who we are as the church. We are the bride of Christ. We have been brought together through the saving grace that we find within the gospel, and God has forged us to be one. How? Because of the common denominator of the blood of Jesus that washes us all of our sins. But here's the last thing that the gospel does. In Christ, not only are we saved and receive mercy in Christ, not only are we forced to be a people, but our differences honestly melt away and become nothing. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. Galatians chapter 3, verses 27 and 28, Paul highlights this to the church at Galatia. He says, for all of you who were baptized in Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. What Paul does here. As he looks at the Galatian church, in the Galatian church, you had Jews, you had Gentiles. You had masters and servants, owners of those slaves, in the same church. You had men and women, of course, in the same church. And you know what Paul highlights? He goes, all the things that make you different, that make you separate, that make you separate from, from you know, everything else in society, he goes, in Christ all are one. Notice what it does. All these things that you hold on to, all these things that you grasp, all these things that make you separate and different from everyone else or make you fit this group or this group or this group or this group, gone. Did you know the church was the only place where a servant could sit right next to his master, not have to sit at his feet? Did you know a church was the only place that a woman could actually sit amongst and near the men? First century church broke a lot of rules in that cultural concept of what was right. In Christ, all are one. The gospel, great power in the gospel to bring salvation, to forge us into a people, and to make our differences melt away so that our commonalities are the things that define us. 
what I saw this week from my brothers and sisters, none of this was a reality. And you may have seen the same things on your own Facebook feeds or your own issues where you saw things like this, where people were divided, forgetting that the gospel brings us together. It should not be used to separate us. Our commonalities, our uniqueness, our unity, our oneness in Christ, that should be the thing that defines us. That's the power of the gospel. The second thing about this element is that they were full of grace, or great grace was upon them all. Grace is actually a very important part of the message of Christ. It is something that we are supposed to do. Not only are we given grace, but we are supposed to be gracious in the way that we act and conduct ourselves toward others, both those inside of the church and especially those who are outside of the church. We are supposed to conduct ourselves in such a way that people want to know what it is that makes us so different and why we want to come together and be with each other as often as we do. Christians should be defined as strange. We should be defined as weird. We should be defined as eccentric, as a group of people. That should define us. But some people go, those words are kind of, you know, I don't want to be defined as that. Well, that's who we are. First century church, they were defined as that way. Why? Because they did things that were really weird. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We're going to look at it here as I get to the end of my sermon. The reality is they did things that were rather strange. Why would they do this? Because of how they acted. The idea of grace being a part of them. There's a reality of this. Even though we may act with grace and conduct ourselves with grace and compassion and love and be self-controlled, and seek understanding in these, in these environments, the reality is that there are going to be people who are not going to react positive to the message that we have. We know that the first century church dealt with persecution. We've already seen them be arrested once with the cripple. We've looked at that for the past three weeks. We know that Peter's going to be arrested again. We know that Stephen, one of the seven that is chosen to help out with that issue with the Grecian uh, widows, we know that he's a first martyr. We know that Paul, after he is converted, is thrown in jail. We know that he is beaten. We know that he's even stoned. He gets back up and goes back into the town. This is a reality. They know that people are not going to always like the message that they have, and people are going to react to them in a negative way. But just because someone reacts to you in a negative way doesn't mean that you should drop down and react in the same way. God expects something different of us. We are to conduct ourselves in a specific way that shows that we honor our king. Grace is important in that. This is what Paul reveals to us and reveals to us how much grace is important in our speech and our conduct. In Colossians chapter 4 verses 5 and 6, Paul said this, Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though it were seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Notice what he says. Conduct yourselves with wisdom. Let your words be filled with grace. How do we conduct ourselves and how we react verbally or whether it's typing it out with words? It matters. We are to do it in a gracious and a, an understanding way. Paul or Peter talks about us being able to respond to a person who has a question about the hope that we have, but we need to respond to them with compassion and with grace, with understanding. 
We need to be, as James says, we need to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Why? Because the more that we listen, the more we can understand, and the more we can make the most of the opportunity and actually hear what we are, what, what's being said. Does it mean that we agree with a person that's talking to us? No. It doesn't mean that we agree with them, but we give them the ear and the respect that they deserve, and in turn, when you speak, you know what they're going to react with? A listening ear, and more times than not, an open mind. If you go through this and seeking understanding with each other, there's a dialogue that can happen. Maybe you really don't need to speak on things. Maybe you just need to ask questions. You ask a question, then listen to what they have to say. Again, you may not agree 100% with what they have to say. You may not agree even with 5% of what they have to say. But you can hear what they're saying. You can hear what's happening. And then you can respond with grace, with love, with wisdom. So that the words that you use, Paul says, are flavored with salt. Savory to the tongue. In other words, they want to hear more of what you have to say. Another word for that is winsome. Not only should we be of one heart and one mind by looking at our commonalities, but we need to realize that the gospel is something that has power. It is something that forges us together, brings us salvation, and makes our differences go to the wayside. It's the thing that enables us to speak with grace and wisdom. It's the thing that enables the Holy Spirit to use us in a way to reach those who are hurting. That's exactly what we see here with the apostles. They were preaching the gospel. They were preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And great grace was on them all. Now remember, this is right after they had just prayed and said, God, let us speak boldly the name of of Jesus, you continue doing what you need to do. Give us the wisdom and the boldness to continue to speak because they are going to continue to persecute us. They're continue, going to continue to single us out. They're going to continue. And so they're not worried about what people are going to do to them, but they're real about how they react to others. I want you to think about Stephen. Again, going back to this idea of grace, think about how he reacted when he's being stoned. As his life was being taken away from him, he mirrored and echoed Jesus' last words. Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Stephen said, don't hold this against anyone. Grace, wisdom, compassion, and love even to the very end. This is how we are to react in a lot of the situations that we are facing. The last one that I want to look at is this. The church gave of what they had to those who needed it. Verses 34 and 35, it reveals to us that those who had stuff sold it. They had land, they had houses, they sold it, they brought the proceeds, and they set it at the apostles' feet. This accomplished two things. They met the needs of those who were, th- who were within the body of Christ, and they as well met the needs of those who were not yet a part of who they were and a part of the brotherhood. They met the needs of those who were around them. Again, this is very similar to what we saw in Acts chapter 2, where they were acting strange and started meeting the needs and taking care of the people that were around them. They found great favor with the people of Jerusalem. Why? Because of how they were acting. With a commonality, with a common interest, with an understanding of being one heart and one mind. They were focused on what they needed to focus on, and they didn't focus on all of the peripheral issues that honestly amounted to nothing. 
they were able to accomplish a lot of great things. Again, the best way to summarize what they did here is they gave of what they had to those who had need. If they had physical needs, they met those physical needs. But here's the reality. They didn't just want to meet their physical needs. They wanted to meet their spiritual and emotional needs. They wanted to seek understanding and have conversations with people so that they could introduce to them who Jesus was and how much he can really free them from what it is that they're facing. The reality is is this is what we as a church are supposed to do. This is a beautiful picture, by the way, of the church. This is one of my favorite passages in all of Acts, a small little section, because it gives us the most beautiful picture and the purest picture of what the church is really honestly supposed to be, how we are supposed to react and, and, and deal with each other. And a lot of people look at it and say, well, how's that even possible? They apparently were able to do it. They brought the kingdom as much as they could here on earth. The reality is that they only did it in part. But the part that they brought, I think, is an amazing, beautiful picture that we should strive to get to and even surpass. I want you to think about this one idea. What would happen if we as a church started acting like this? What would happen to our community? What would happen to our county? What would happen if other churches saw this and they too started acting like this? How would that affect our nation? How would that have an impact on the world as it continues just to spread? It's something to ponder. As the more that I look at that, the more that I think about that, I was like, it'd be, it'd be great if we could do that. Think about all the issues that we as a church face that we could get out of the way because they really don't amount to a whole lot of anything because we're focused on the peripheral issues and we forgot about the things we hold in common. You see, instead of using cutting words or verbal hand grenades, as I saw from some of my brothers and sisters from Johnson or from the RGIM group, instead of seeing that, see them unified to seek how can we help and meet the needs of those around us. To look at our nation and say that it's not hurting, you would have to be burying your head in the sand. There are people within churches who are also hurting, who are seeking understanding, who are seeking why. The only answer is in Christ and Christ alone. We hold the things that we have in common and we make those the ideal definers of who we are. We listen, we talk, we use grace. Use compassion. We meet people with love the way that we ourselves were met with love. That can transform anybody in any sector of society. Again, Paul said it best. In Christ, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. There is no free, oppressed, and there is no slave. There's, there's, there's none of that. There's no male denominator, there's no female denominator. There is the reality of we are all one in Christ. We are all a people, a nation of his possession and his making. It's a beautiful picture. And I think it's something that we have lost sight of as a church overall. Not just here, but overall in all sectors of Christendom. This is 
what we are to aim for. This is who we are to be. But in order to become and to start off by being of one heart and one mind, it requires us, first of all, to do this. To allow ourselves to have the Spirit come, break us, and use us as He sees fit and not as we see fit. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to thank you and praise you for who you are. God, I ask that as <coughs> we finish up here this morning, that Father God, that we would remember what we have in you, what it means to be the church. We are a place where we come together and we're supposed to be of one heart and one mind. And God, we have different ideas, we have different opinions, we have different things. And, and a lot of us hold on to those things because those things are dear to us. And it's not that they're not important. But when we come together as the body to represent you, our focus should be on you and not the peripheral issues that are all around us. Because those can drag our attention this way or that way and cause division. And Satan will use those opportunities to his greatest desires and greeds. But God, we pray that you would allow us to have that one heart, one mind, focus on our commonalities, to be forged into the people who have been saved by your grace and the gospel which takes everything but the most important things away. Allow us to act with grace and compassion to those that are around us that are seeking and that are questioning. God, most importantly, allow us to give of what we have to those who are around us to meet their greatest needs. There's no greater need than to meet their true need. God, we thank you and we praise you. It's in your son's name I pray. Amen. Thank you, Tim. Thank you for your thoughts, and thank you, Heavenly Father, for your word that, that leads us, teaches us. This morning, we're going to be singing, His Name is Wonderful. And if you have a decision to make, you come as we, as we sing, whatever that decision might be. Most of all, most important decision we can make is to follow Jesus as our Lord and Savior. Maybe you just need prayer. Maybe you need encouragement. We encourage you to do that as well. If you would stand, we'll be singing, His Name is Wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord, He is the mighty King, Master of everything. His name is wonderful. Jesus, my Lord. 